1: podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org.
2: Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. I'm Andy, we've got an action-packed show for you tonight and I've got Vivian Langford on the line now to tell us all about it. Hey Viv, can you hear me?
0: Yes, I can, Andy. Thanks for ringing. No, um, right. I'd like to tell the listeners about my long conversation with Mark Butler. I was especially honoured, I think, you know, that he gave me a full hour to talk, and it's not so much action packed as uh, philosophical and policy minded. So okay. it's really him going through what he's found in his book, The Climate Wars. Um, what's the impediment to action in Australia? Which most people listening to this program, I think, will be very frustrated that, you know, a rich country like Australia, a well-educated country Mm. like Australia, uh, is just going around in circles, you know, putting up climate packages in the parliament and then slashing them with the next, um, you know, team who come in. It's just hopelessly circular. So that's, um, you know, it's it's interesting for listeners. I hope you listen because Mark Butler tells us really what the ALP has kind of bold action plan it might not be bold enough for you but on the other hand this is the pragmatic thing that he sees the pragmatic possibilities once we can get past the climate wars and find some unified plan to work around
2: sounds great Viv sounds really interesting as usual
0: It is, and I would also like, I just thought I'm not going to say anything at the end, but I usually put some action, you know, we always tell people the action, I'd like to say to the listeners, since I spoke to Mark Butler, that's maybe, <clears throat> I pre-recorded it in Melbourne, and since then we've had m- much more um, catastrophic weather, let's say, mm-hmm. and it's been very much reported in the uh, media as just a weather event, you know, a one-off, a freak storm, and... The Asian part of it, which has been much more damaging, many more people, millions of people really put out between Bangladesh and India and Nepal. You know, They've just been put out of their homes. Many have died, many more, but the media has been quiet. If listeners would like to look at our website tomorrow with the podcast for this show, just click on this, an article by George Monbiot. I would really love everyone to read it, or you could just Google Monbiot.com. Why are the crucial questions around Hurricane Harvey um, not answered? You know, and he calls out the media. He said, We're very shocked when Trump says, you know, government sh- officials shouldn't use the word climate change, but we're not shocked when the media just leaves the climate change connection, leaves out the fact that the fossil fuels uh, that, are, that are intensifying these uh, weather events. You know, it's a really good article, and I think everyone reading that would become kind of motivated to call out the media as well as call out the politicians. And I just think I would like to also ask the listeners if you've been thinking about Bangladesh and wondering what's happening there. I can't report on it yet, but I'm going to get a speaker the next for the next, you know, in the next little bit. I'll be able to get a Bangladeshi speaker or an Indian, you know, climate expert who can tell us exactly what it's like and just at the moment just to tell the listeners what I found out if they would like to support Médecins Sans Frontier they, their appeal is very um, well written up on their website and apparently in Dhaka just for example one statistic they usually get in Dakar City at one clinic they normally get a hundred people with diarrhoea conditions you know mm. bad enough to take the child or person to a hospital now Going from 100 a day, they're now getting a thousand a day, mm. and that's just that's one terrible. statistic to indicate. And they've got cholera breaking out. They've got—I think it's a historic moment, you know, with the Bangladesh, uh, quite a lot of it underwater, a lot of people having to move out from where they live, and then at the same time. A human rights tragedy Of the Rohingya people being pushed out From um, n- next door Myanmar So yeah. that is um, a kind of tragedy That's happening And <clears throat> we need to uh, just think of them And I think one good thing for listeners We're always taking different sorts of climate action Writing letters to MPs But this would be something Give a donation to Med Sans Frontières Or Red Cross, whichever Oxfam You know, just to show that you understand That, you know, there is a kind of a a crisis, These are also anyway. climate refugees and climate-affected climate,
2: climate affected people. Well, thank you for calling in, Viv. I'll yeah. start by playing the interview now. And yeah. Yeah, And it's good. just
0: also one more thing to the listeners. If, if they want to read Mark Butler's book, it's available. It's it's quite an easy-to-read book. It, it's called Climate Wars, and it, it is frustrating to know how we you know gone two steps forward and two steps back but you know he makes it very clear and it points the way forward to you know things that we could have um, bipartisan policies around so i think it's a good read thanks andy no worries
2: not a problem all right we'll check that out now uh thanks for joining us here we go
1: Climate Wars is the Honourable Mark Butler's new book. It's not about the war we need to have with a massive decarbonisation and rollout of infrastructure. It's about a war in Canberra between the opposing parts of Parliament, delaying action, protecting and subsidising coal and gas, and a decade when many citizens have lost hope and respect for Parliament. Mark Butler has been in government and in opposition, and he's the shadow minister for climate change at the moment. He's often out in the community consulting with workers, businesses, and activists. He witnessed the world's first repeal of a carbon tax, and he's seen renewable energy jobs disappear as investors become disgusted by the policy uncertainties. And he's also witnessed in south australia i would say a steady taking up of leadership in renewable energy so welcome Mark. thank you so much for being with
3: us oh, my pleasure
1: mark your book starts with a concert in adelaide
3: It does, and for me, that was really um, the the peak of, the, frankly, the stupidity of some of the public debate around uh, climate change and energy policy. It followed really quite an extraordinary week where there had been a very high-profile press conference between the South Australian Premier, Jay Wetherill, and the Federal Energy Minister, Josh Frydenberg, where I think the South Australian Premier really vented about six or nine months of gratuitous political attack by the Federal Government on South Australia's energy problems and then within a couple of days people might remember elon musk getting involved in a twitter conversation about the installation of a large battery which is now actually underway in south australia yes (laughs) He, he agreed that if he couldn't deliver a 100 megawatt battery which is extraordinarily large by global standards within three months it would be free and within only a couple of days of that we had this extraordinary concert Uh, at the Adelaide Oval. My daughter went, my 15-year-old daughter was there, the Adele concert with 70,000 fans. And at one stage, the revolving stage that Adele was on, was designed and built in Bendigo, pulled an electricity cord out of the socket, causing some of the amplification to go down. and So there was an interruption to the concert for a few minutes, but during those few minutes, a whole bunch of News Corp, Uh, uh, journalists jumped onto social media and blamed the interruption to part of the power supply on renewable energy and Chris Kenny who was hosting a Sky News, his Sunday night Sky, Sky News program at the time also declared that there was another power blackout in South Australia and for me it just highlighted the degree to which opponents of ambitious forward-looking climate change and energy policy really will grasp onto absolutely anything and blame renewable energy for things that are frankly caused by very different scenarios, whether it's the extraordinary storm event that happened last September in South Australia that blew down 23 steel transmission towers, or whether it's the fact that a revolving stage pulls a power cord out of a socket, which is then just put back in by, I'm sure, a very flustered groupie.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a kind of <coughs> cognitive dissonance for the listeners and audience for this sort of media because you've seen the photos of the power towers going down and the people at the Adele concert would have seen that it was all fixed up in a few seconds. Like, you think, how, is it, how to compute all of this? And I wonder how you, in Parliament, you must see lots of press and media coverage of things that's completely wrong. Um, how hard is it for you to push back
3: well, it is hard, and as your introduction said, um, this, my book is not um, not advocating a continuation of the climate no. war. Far be it, it's advocating an end to the climate wars because without some sort of breakout of peace on this issue, it is going to be very difficult for Australia to make the transition to clean energy. But equally, it's not an argument for unilateral <coughs> disarmament. I mean, the only way we end the wars is by taking on that loud minority who shout down, who shout down every attempt to make a progressive change on climate and energy policy. Uh, And I describe um, in the book and in the speeches I've been making about the book uh, a parallel universe where um, some of our media, uh, a shrinking number of our business organisations, but certainly a group of our politicians led by Tony Abbott, have really tried to shift the the Australian public debate around climate and energy policy into a parallel universe which, for most of the rest of the countries of the world who are making this transition would simply be unrecognisable
1: yes and i mean a lot of people realize that there's fossil fuel money behind this
3: well there there, there is and there's there's a a much less tangible i think um, attempt by some on the right of politics just to have a fight about this for the sake of having a fight about something Uh, and you will have seen in the years past, um, for those who've been watching this debate for for some time, uh, right-wing political figures like Nick Minchin and Andrew Robb from the Liberal Party actually writing quite blatantly about climate change being a leftist conspiracy uh, designed to try and achieve the destruction of capitalism in a way that the Cold War wasn't able to do. Mm. They actually think that this is all essentially made up to give the left something to talk about and something to campaign around rather than an agenda which has simply flowed from very clear scientific consensus which has been building now for the past three or four decades.
1: Yeah. Well, look, your book chronicles the last decade really well and most listeners will remember the last decade. Before that, they might not remember. And I remember, you know, 10 years ago, Malcolm Turnbull and Bob Carr, at the start of the, the decade, they were together, launching Beyond Zero Emissions' first report. And it was all about how we'd roll out all this, you know, renewable energy infrastructure. It was all going to happen in 10 years, and they endorsed it. And Sydney Town Hall, it was filled to capacity. And it was ecstatic. And I remember thinking then, oh, you know, 2007, 2017, it's going to be full of climate action. I didn't quite believe we'd roll out all of that in 10 years, but, you know, I just thought once they get onto it, it's going to be full of climate action. And Europe, in that same time, did get onto it. The UK put into, you know, um, agreeable policies to both parties or all the major parties agreed and Europe got on with with that sort of um, (coughs) rollout. But what happened here?
3: Well, I think there's still uh, a furious debate about whether that period 2007 and 2008 uh, actually did see a genuine consensus build between particularly the two major parties, the Liberal and the Labor Party here in Australia, or whether it was really all just a facade. And you, people will have maybe seen John Howard make a number of speech, speeches over the last few years where he says that his decision finally to yield to public pressure and to uh, establish as Liberal Party policy the introduction of an emissions trading scheme did not reflect his deep-held beliefs. Actually, he describes it as simply a political device to deal with some pressure that an insurgent Labor Party was placing on the Howard government in its last 12 months in office. And I think the facts really do bear out the argument that flows from Howard's speech, that that really within the Liberal Party, although there was the facade of a surrender to sensible climate change policy, actually there was still under the radar a very strong group a very powerful group within the Liberal Party and certainly the National Party that were opposed to any uh, serious climate change policy. And that group reasserted itself, as people will know, in 2009 in opposing Malcolm Turnbull's decision to negotiate with the Labor government, led then by Kevin Rudd, around a carbon pollution reduction scheme, and ultimately to topple Malcolm Turnbull from the leadership altogether and put in place Tony Abbott instead.
1: Mm. I, d- I don't think most people can really believe how vicious it is and, and was in Parliament. You were there in the Parliament at that time. What was it like as Rudd, who came in really on a wave of climate action approval, um
3: you know. It was an extraordinary time, and it was really across the world. As you, as you said, David Cameron, uh, who was the new conservative leader in the UK, had decided to try and rid his party of what he called the sort of image of nastiness. And one of the ways in which he did that was to um, make much more progressive their view about climate change policy. And ultimately that led to the Climate Change Act in 2008 in the United Kingdom, being supported by both major parties. It was Labor legislation, but it was supported by David Cameron. And then ultimately, when David Cameron won government, he continued to implement the Climate Change Act and a big a big push towards renewable energy. At the same time, in 2008, it's often not remembered that Barack Obama and John McCain, who was the Republican candidate for president that year, both took to the presidential election in 2008 a cap-and-trade scheme, which is really their description of what we call an emissions trading scheme. So across the world, there was a bit of a breakout of pro-climate change politics in the world. But um, after the division and the disappointment of the Copenhagen Conference And a very concerted campaign funded by the Koch brothers in the United States, um, uh, a pair of very rich billionaires in the U.S. who have a long history of funding right-wing campaigns, whether it's uh, opposed to tobacco control or, more recently, opposed to climate and energy policy. Across the world, there was a very strong push back against that building momentum for, for a strong climate change consensus. Uh, people might remember they really grasped onto a conspiracy theory about emails that have been uncovered yeah. at one university, which ultimately was trying yeah. to be re- really coming to nothing
1: oh, that took um, up ages too didn't all the right. debate about it just took all the oxygen out of it that's
3: right and and that combined i think with the the, the increasing focus on immediate economic issues that flowed from the global financial crisis really did puncture um that sense of hope that had existed across the world in 2006 seven and eight
1: yeah, but it's an ideological um, thing that's been building. You say the Koch brothers put money in, and I know here money's been put into media, but there's also these think tanks where people go. Naomi Klein describes it in her um, big book, This Changes Everything, um, you know, where, where she goes to the Heartland Institute, and they're just putting forward a world view that now we see. In American um, Congress, you know, those people have now got power. They've actually got power, but before that they were behind the scenes. Do you think, how can you account for that here?
3: Well, I think because there are very strong connections between those think tanks in the US and the think tanks here, like the IPA uh, and others, and certainly very strong lines of communication between particularly the right wing of the Liberal Party and um, that group within the Republican Party that have been... Pushing back against that consensus that was building. Uh, uh, so, so there's been those connections for a long time, and, and, and that's why I think you see um, probably in America and Australia the high point, not in a good way, but the, the high point of that climate change scepticism. You just don't see it really in any other democracy. I mean, it, it played a bit in Canada under Stephen Harper, but really, Australia and America stand out as the beacons for climate change scepticism significantly because of the role played by some in business but certainly those think tanks and a number within the media
1: mm, it's very shaming for us because i interview a lot of people europeans and they say like how did how did this happen how can you not just get on with it you know an educated public would see through this and i i just flinch you know
3: well, I think what you see here in Australia is um, below, the, below the level of national parliament. Um, a lot of other organs within our society just getting on with it, whether it's state governments doing things like the Victorian Renewable Energy Target and what South Australia is doing here, Queensland and so many others. Local councils are really pushing hard, particularly the capital city councils for zero emissions policies. But most notably, I think households are just doing it. I mean, what we have seen is that while our national parliament has been a real laggard globally in climate change policy Australian households outstrip any other country in the world in take-up uh, of rooftop solar. 1.7 million households now have rooftop solar for a whole range of reasons. People have done this, but significantly um, as their contribution to environmental sustainability and climate change action. There are more Australian households indeed that have rooftop solar than America has, you know, with about 310 or 320 million people in it.
1: And on top of that, you know, they've got organised. I've seen you at um, Solar Council conferences and uh, solar citizens, and they've sort of realised they can... Unify as solar rooftop owners and, and have a little bit of political push. And I really think that's wonderful how they, they've done that. It's that's fantastic. They've kept and, very focused.
3: And, and even while um, many of our traditional media outlets uh, are pushing back against climate change action, uh, the, the explosion in social media platforms has really allowed groups like that, Solar Citizens, Solar Council, many, many others... Beyond Zero Emissions doing fabulous um, publication work very regularly. It really gives a platform to get around the Murdoch organs or around Alan Jones and Ray Hadley and the others to um, to see that communication happen. But at the end of the day, there is going to be a glass ceiling, a relatively low glass ceiling, on Australia's ability to take strong climate action if the national parliament doesn't get its act together. Mm. Uh, And that is one of the differences, I think, between America and Australia, in that, um, in spite of the fact that Donald Trump has decided to pull America America out of the Paris Agreement and clearly takes a very um, strong climate change sceptic approach to this the American states still have substantial power to continue uh, doing what um, they were doing under the Obama president. So oh, so yes. California and New York, they have 50% renewable energy targets by 2030, uh, as, as we do as Labor Party policy here. And they're just going to continue doing that, frankly, in spite of, of what Donald Trump...
1: Said. Yeah, yeah. Well, you uh, come back to Australia now, to the government level. You say that in your book that fossil fuel the industry has demonstrated an unrivalled ability to stymie governments seeking to implement strong climate and energy policy. Well, any delay they can get is good because they, they can keep on making money out of it. But how have you seen this in action? How does it work in the corridors of power?
3: Well, I mean, you only really need to look at the, the second term of the last Labor government to see it operating in practice um, in two two very high-profile instances, the the first being the mining tax, which was a a super profits tax for companies um, earning very high profits at the height of the commodities boom, and you saw really an unprecedented campaign financially and in terms of its ferocity against the government's attempt to introduce a, a pretty basic super profits tax of the type that we've had since the 1980s for offshore oil and gas projects for example mm. and the second is the the campaign against the carbon the, the carbon pricing mechanism the so-called carbon tax uh, under julia Gillard and greg Combe. and the thing I, I point out about that is that it's all well and good for businesses and other other organs of civil society to uh to debate the detail of government policy and, and that's how a you know a vibrant democracy works but the the criticism i make of a number of business groups at that time is that they effectively signed up to tony abbott's agenda which argued that not only was that they went far beyond the argument that there was a problem with the detail of our policy tony abbott argued that there should not be a climate change policy at all Mm -hmm. he said we didn't need a climate change and energy policy at all and too many business groups signed up to that and i think now we're bearing the consequences of that because for four years we've had an utter vacuum in climate change and energy policy which has seen two very unsurprising things happen the first is that carbon pollution has started to rise again so that we're now pretty much the only major advanced economy in the world where carbon pollution is going up not coming down and the second thing we've seen happen is an energy crisis developed because none of the energy companies know what the rules are going to be because there are no rules Mm -hmm. governing investment nationally now and we're getting to the point where there's no investment coming through in a structural sense to our electricity system which is creating a crisis that's hurting businesses and hurting households.
0: Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au.
1: Can we just go back to that period of the Gillard government that you mentioned, that most listeners will remember the the hung parliament and they'll remember Julia Gillard, Christine Milne, Tony Windsor and others and how hard they worked in those feverish times, really, uh, on the Clean Energy Act, which brought in, I think, in the first year, quite a, a decrease in emissions. You know, we actually saw the emissions even in that first year. And you say that it was a feverish time, bordering on hysteria with horrible headlines, I think everyone will remember the um, Gillard's Bob Brown's bitch you know really hateful speech being put out in the public and uh, repeated in the echo chamber but after that hysteria had all died down and you're writing in cool reflection in climate wars I wondered why you didn't seem to uh, give more credit to the greens and those others in their contribution at that stage in history in getting that clean energy act that was so forward seeking with the clean energy finance and the arena and all the things in place that we could have built on
3: yeah well look it was a, it was a very good process that greg was able greg combo was able to lead with um the support of the greens party and tony windsor and rob oak the two new south wales Rural independence at the time, and it came up with a package that I think objectively was recognised as as um, really world's best practice in climate change and renewable energy and financing mechanisms and such like. Uh, but it, you know, the problem the problem with it was it, it didn't have the support of the other major party, and so um, it didn't last more than two years. and And I think that that's really the challenge Australia has uh, recognised around the world that if you're going to put in place policy that actually sees a big shift in the way in which the economy operates it needs to have a level of consensus underpinning it at a political level, particularly consensus between the two major parties of the type you see in the United Kingdom and many other developed countries. And I think that's that's really the message of the book. Um, what I've tried to do, though, is to be pretty frank about the mistakes that we made. Uh, I think Kevin Rudd and Julie Gillard and others have been uh, frank about the mistakes we made in our six years uh, in this area. Kevin, for example, has been pretty frank that his decision to drop the carbon pollution reduction scheme in 2010 uh, in the way in which he did was probably his biggest political mistake of his career. Uh, But I think although the support we got from the Greens in our second term in government was positive, I still think that their decision to support Tony Abbott in effectively his first parliamentary test after toppling Malcolm Turnbull in scuttling the carbon pollution reduction scheme in the Senate in 2009-2010 uh, it was still a profound tactical mistake. Yeah. I think it gave Tony Abbott the mm. boost at precisely the time we needed to to challenge this um, climate change scepticism that he had toppled Malcolm Turnbull on.
1: Yeah, well, with hindsight, that is right. But when I read your book, I thought um, it seemed to be very little um, appreciation of what had happened. And in terms of this consensus, I agree with you because that's what they have in the UK. It's uncontroversial, isn't it? But we need to get a consensus. And Naomi Klein's just written a book, No Is Not Enough. And I'd like to know what can the left and the right of politics say yes to?
3: Well, I think we have a test before us right now, and that is the, the Finkel recommendation from uh, the Chief Scientist, Alan Finkel, and his panel for a clean energy target. Uh, now, we won't, we won't agree on all of the elements of that and the level of ambition, for example, that we should <coughs> pursue between now and 2030. But if the two major parties are not able to agree under Malcolm Turnbull's leadership, the broad design of a clean energy target that would guide clean energy investment between now and 2030, then I think the Parliament and the country really do have a problem. And it's still unclear to everyone, I think, whether Malcolm Turnbull and Josh Frydenberg are going to be able to deliver the coalition party room on that pretty modest recommendation from Alan Finkel. And and, and this is is the challenge, I think, for us. Uh, At the end of the day, to get that sort of consensus the deep philosophical division within the coalition between the Tony Abbott forces, if you like, that think we should not have any climate change and energy policy in Australia, and the more moderate forces that people would traditionally have associated with Malcolm Turnbull need to need to have it out. A- and the clean energy target really is the, the policy question on which that uh, debate finally has to happen between them. And it's very important, I think, that the business community continue to do what they've been doing over the last couple of months since the release of the Finkel Report and make the case that it is in the national interest that the coalition endorse a clean energy target.
1: Mm. All right. Well, look, um, and I can see your book outlines very well, you know, if you were in government, you'd have on all those bases covered you'd, you'd be well ready to <laughs> go ahead with it which is we should be assuring to for the reader to to know that you've got the thinking there because i think so much of our policy seems to have been very shallow so or as you said before you know not based in consensus so we've got to get something that everyone can say yes to let's move now out into the community we've talked about Canberra, but, you know, you meet a lot of stakeholders and voters and what I want to know is why are Australians not voting for strong climate action?
3: Well, um, it's hard to discern exactly what what Australians are voting on because when they go to the ballot box at a federal election or even a state election, there might be five, six, seven things going through their minds, um, all of which might be relatively disconnected. They might be concerned about... Medicare or the state of their local hospital the education their kids or their grandkids are getting um, uh, as well as climate action or whether the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is going to be rolled back. It's hard ultimately to understand exactly what the one thing that causes them to vote one way or the other is going to be. But I think it is also clear that the research has continued to show right through the period where the national parliament has has been fighting the climate wars. That there is still a pretty resilient support among the Australian community or within the Australian community for climate action, and there's certainly very very strong, resilient support for government for governments at both Commonwealth and state levels having ambitious plans for renewable energy. Uh, and um, you know, as the Labor Party, we we are. Uh, utterly committed to to responding to those demands out in the community.
1: Yeah, well, my impression is that apart from the activists, you know, and the people who poll, yes, they want all renewable energy, I think the public is complacent. And I know it's not done to criticise your own country, but I feel that we're complacent and we're not ashamed of having the highest per capita capita emissions in the world and we don't pressure the government really to phase out petrol fueled cars or to build the high-speed rail, you know, or... I, or stop the land clearing. I don't think... Uh, you're an MP, you probably get a lot of letters, but is a large proportion of them about this sort of thing? Have I got the wrong end of the stick? But people I meet don't seem to care that much about all this.
3: Well, we, one, one of the symptoms of the climate wars, and particularly the role that, that the media, the mainstream media has played in this, is that, um, is that the, public, the public discourse doesn't focus on these issues in the way in which it might in other countries. And that is our challenge, I think, to to lift the level of community discussion about climate change, about the impacts of climate change on a very vulnerable continent. I mean, we're, we're wealthy, but, we, but ours is a very vulnerable continent to the impacts of climate change, whether it's an increase in heat events, a reduction, a very substantial structural reduction in rainfall and stream flow in the southern half of the continent, coastal sea level rise and all those sorts of things they're discussed much more prominently in other countries than they are here where the mainstream media frankly tries to ignore these issues or where they happen um, don't don't connect it to the climate science so uh, i think it is it is easy to understand or it's easy to explain i think the the relatively low level of dialogue around climate change in the Australian community, given the low profile given to the issue in mainstream media compared to most other democracies.
1: Yeah, well, I think... Our challenge
3: is to lift that.
1: Yeah, and I thank you for giving us a chance to have an in-depth interview about your whole book. It's really got a lot in it. One of the things I really found interesting, you mentioned the social contract, and that's a concept that I think has gone out of fashion, but then Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders... You know, they get crowds in, I think thirsting for exactly that a social contract it seems they're offering the old-fashioned things the welfare state measures that were there when they were young but to young people that sounds like a whole new dispensation and i was reading about this you know the welfare state and the origins of it and apparently at the end of the second world war there was the beverage report and it was a blueprint for the welfare state and people queued all night to get a copy and translations of it were dropped from airplanes over europe and even in hitler's bunker they found two copies in translated in German. So I thought this is amazing. We wouldn't have a, a government report, you know, promising a new vision, you know, now as a kind of almost a weapon of war. And it promised a social contract that would wipe out inequality. Now that's really the, the heartland of the Labour Party, isn't it? And I feel that the Paris Climate Agreement, it was a first step. It got a lot of, you know, a lot of people involved and very well prepared in the months before. And so people are really committed to it. But we need a, an international agreement, you know, a Paris agreement that has that sort of feeling of a social contract that people feel they are, you know, involved and included in a contract like that beverage report. What do you think about that, you know, from giving all the parts of society that need improvement that when people vote they vote for a whole package really but it includes this sort of climate action we're talking about
3: absolutely and one of the arguments i make in the book is this this um, although it's very much a 21st century challenge in its contours it is at its basic level the sort of challenge that social democratic parties have been running up against since the late 1800s when parties like the australian labour party were formed and we were formed around most obviously a mission to break down structural inequalities in society initially those were structural inequalities around class but but over time we've we've battled and our sister parties across the world have battled around structural inequalities based on gender on race on religion on sexual preference and a range of others disability and a range of other um, inequalities within society. But the second mission of a social democratic party, and I think a social democratic society as Australia is, is to confront these inevitable transitions and disruptions that happen in our economies and in our, in our society and make sure that those transitions, which are often beyond our control, uh, are managed in a way that is as fair as possible to the broad community to make sure that the pain of transition or the burden of transition is shared fairly, as is the opportunity which inevitably comes along from any transition or disruption to society. And the, the post war period, that, that period in the 1940s, when across um, Western economies, particularly that weren't dealing with, uh, with um, uh, post war communism, uh, the debate within those communities, having experienced a decade and a half of the Great Depression and World War, about how to make their communities fairer in economic terms, I think is a really important model for the way in which we deal with the challenge of decarbonising economies yeah. like Australia's. The other, the other model, I think, obviously, at a more recent level, is the 1980s in Australia, America and the UK, and many other countries besides, where there was a substantial opening up of our economies. And that caused um, substantial pain but it also had a lot of opportunity for uh, for countries and the way in which we managed that in Australia under Hawke and Keating was very different to the way in which Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher managed that transition I think much more harshly than we managed here in Australia. These are the models for the way in which we deal with the long-term transition to a clean energy economy in Australia I think.
1: Yeah, well, you had a lot of detail in your book about the... You've done a lot of thinking about the transition for workers, especially in carbon-affected communities, and I was interested in that because I've been trying to interview people over the last few years, and I haven't really found anyone who had a big picture, how it all fits in, what are the historical precedents type of answer, which you did. Would you like to tell us what you think should happen, not like we've been having at Port Augusta or in um, Hazelwood, you know, hasty, fairly seemingly chaotic... um, transition plans put in place, but something a bit more measured and more uh, something that people can really trust in?
3: Well, the most important thing is a plan. Um, You really need a clear plan so that everyone who's affected by this transition understands what is going to happen and what supports will will be put in place over the short, medium and long term. And that's what what we've been lacking here in Australia. So you've got to the point where the power stations in Port Augusta and the Iron Triangle in South Australia were shut with, I think, 11 months' notice, and Hazelwood was shut with five months' notice. I mean, both of them had substantial impacts on the security of our electricity system, but perhaps more importantly, um, were pitifully short periods of notice to to the local communities that, in many cases, had really had been built up around the coal-fired power stations that were put in place in the post-war period In the Latrobe Valley and in the Iron Triangle in South Australia, so you need long-term plans that give people notice and also um, give a give a give a sense of assuredness to local workers and communities that support will be put in place for the workers immediately affected. uh, There's quite a good model for that to make sure that there's portability of work between the different power stations which will not all be shutting down at one time but will be transitioning out of the system over a period of many years. So at one power station in the Latrobe Valley there might be people who are of an age that means they're ready to retire but other younger workers in that power station shutting down might only be starting their working period they might only be starting a family and have got a mortgage with a new house and they want to keep working in the electricity industry so can they be shifted to one of the power stations that remains open with the availability of the older workers that are at, at that other power station to to take a redundancy package and move into retirement they're the sorts of things for workers immediately affected but for the local community there needs to be a much more sophisticated, deeper level of planning around how you're going to diversify their economies. And we haven't done that well traditionally in Australia. Um, we did we did do it relatively well in Newcastle as we got notice of the shutdown of the, um, the, the steel operations in Newcastle. You had a Labor government then led by Bob Carr that, that put in place substantial investment to make sure that there were other enterprises starting up at the time that the Steel operations were shutting down, and Newcastle now is a very substantial, vibrant economy. Uh, we've got to we've got to look at the best practice. Um, rare though they are that we've that we've seen in Australia, and look overseas as well to find ways to diversify the economies of these regional communities that that in large part were built up in the post-war period around coal-fired power.
1: Yeah, well, I'm very happy if you can ever put onto me anyone who's who's one of those rare people who's got the vision who who would do an interview with me. I feel the trade union people haven't really given me a vision yet and I, I, I know you're in contact with lots of people all the time so just let's keep an open brief on that story, it's really the vital one for
3: Well I'd, I'd, I'd encourage people to have a look at the work of the Latrobe Valley Authority which yep. has been set up by the Andrews government yep. in Victoria uh, and already I know that their work really is very deep and very broad it's, it's looking at the economic but also the social consequences of um, the shutdown of a substantial economic asset like the Hazelwood Power Station Uh, And, um, you know, so I I think everyone around the country is watching with great interest the work that the Latrobe Valley Authority is going to be able to do with the local community, with local businesses, local unions, uh, local councils who have been working together really for some years recognising that this future is coming down the path for the Latrobe Valley community uh, and just needs some support from state and federal government. Mark, can we
1: just come back to the consensus we were talking about before? Um, listeners for who may just have tuned tuned in i'm speaking to the honorable mark butler about his new book climate wars now mark you turn up everywhere i see you at renewable energy target um, meetings At you know with the solar council the year before um, you used to turn up everywhere and i think gosh you you must run yourself ragged getting around the country but i know i appreciate that you do and one of the meetings i saw you speak at was box hill town hall and they at the end there was josh Frydenberg there and the convener of that um was from lighter footprints and she asked you and josh Schreiber just to have a, a talk over coffee one day just to promise that which was the sort of thing you could say in a hall like that but i wanted to know how far have you advanced in some sort of serious collaboration because i think that's what the public wants to see some collaboration between the two major parties
3: uh, i remember that it was a great <laughs> event and <laughs> the interesting thing about that was i, I did, um, obviously, quite a large number of events during the election campaign, and that was the only one where the Liberal Party MP actually turned up, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, which is, I think, a credit to Josh Frydenberg. Um, and also Janet Rice was there representing the Australian yeah. Greens, and, and the three of us, Janet, Josh and I, um, have had coffee in Canberra to follow up on the Box Hill invitation, or I guess the yeah. challenge from yeah. Line of Footprints for us to get together and have a chat. Oh, I mean, I think, to be, to be blunt about it, though... Um, uh, we, we really need to give Josh Frydenberg some space to try and to deal with his own party room to see whether they're going to be able to get some policy. When I say they, I mean Malcolm Turnbull and Josh Frydenberg are going to be able to get some policy through the coalition party room that, that Labor is actually able to work with them on. Um, and still, I think that remains to be seen.
1: Yeah. Well, look, uh, just to move into a broader focus again, outside Australia we've got many less developed countries around us who could be in partnership with us. On the radio I've interviewed the President of Kiribati who was requesting us definitely to stop subsidising coal and gas and islanders who are wanting an orderly migration, you know, a plan for the first climate refugees. I've spoken to Malaysian MPs who are very interested in in, uh, partnerships with other countries They were presently doing work with the Danish government on um, energy efficiency, but they said, well, Australia might be able to help us with expertise on renewable energy. And I thought that's exactly what we could do if we could get ourselves going on this. I wonder what your views are, what sort of intentions you'd like to see for collaboration.
3: Well, there's an enormous opportunity for Australia to to play a role in our own region and globally. Uh, I think, um, and uh, we, we saw that during particularly the last Labor government, where where um, Australia was very active at a regional level, at a bilateral level, and in the in the United Nations multilateral forums in in driving strong climate change policy of course it's a bit hard for australia to be a constructive player when we're not looking after our own backyard and we we have a domestic policy framework at the moment which is seeing carbon carbon pollution rise renewable energy jobs actually decline it's a bit hard for us to play that leadership role but certainly the labor party would like to see us get back to that position of being a good neighbor particularly to uh, to smaller countries in our own region, which are facing, frankly, existential threats from sea level rise uh, driven by climate change, and we have a very deep responsibility. I think to work with those communities very closely. Uh, but, but I think we're we're still seeing the legacy of the work that was done under the last Labor government and the, the National Emissions Trading Scheme that will be that will be introduced in the near future in china will look remarkably like the clean energy package that we put in place when we were last in government under julia gillard and greg combay and that's because at the same time australia and china set up a very active bilateral process looking into emissions trading schemes a lot of australians who worked on the australian package under the labor government have also been working with Chinese partners on the design of the emissions trading schemes that were being being introduced at a provincial level in a pilot scheme uh, in China, first of all, but as I say, will soon be rolled out nationally. And you'll see that very much um, resemble the Australian scheme
1: still at the international level. There was a BZE report that didn't get a lot of traction because I think it was too far ahead, but it saw the potential for Australia to be a renewable energy superpower. And the way they worked it out, it was... Based on that uh, protocol that Bob Hawke organised in, in Antarctica where you had a kind of suddenly a, a ceasefire in Antarctica for mining and Bob Hawke and the French president at the time sort of negotiated it and then the world got in behind it. Well, uh, the, that was the analogy. And there's, there's These two young guys who wrote a report and they said what we need to get is a moratorium on fossil fuel you know, use and export and the, uh, there's only a handful of countries that really have fossil fuels you know, like that. And a lot of them are going well on renewable energy. For example, Norway has got good renewable energy, but it's still drilling for oil in the Arctic. Trudeau's Canada has introduced carbon price, but still expanding tar sands, etc. And Obama, you know, was getting ahead with the Clean Power Act, but then he was allowing a boom in gas and oil. So we're all compromised, the countries with the fossil fuels. And I think that that's, there's a kind of a room there for those countries to see that they are a club and work on it but the next step of that project was that you know we would start to accelerate the transition to renewable energy so at the international level when you're at the paris conference or perhaps subsequently what sort of thinking is there about about really turbocharging the renewable energy
3: Well, the thing about the Paris conference, I think, was just how far the business community had shifted. I mean, There was obviously a very substantial presence from the American and the Chinese governments driving momentum at Paris. There was a very strong presence by what's described as the sub-national governments. The states, the provinces and the cities uh, were playing a very strong role in making sure that things got back on the rails if the national governments weren't um, pushing ahead fast enough. Uh, with the negotiations at the conference. But the real shift I think people recognised was that the, the the real face of the business community at Paris was the face of businesses that wanted to invest in clean energy. Uh, the coal industry, for example, was, was largely invisible at the Paris Climate Conference for the first time really ever in the history of those UN conferences. And instead you had businesses across the spectrum recognising that the investment future lay in clean energy and clean technology. And I think that's what's really going to drive the transition, really at the demand side, rather than the supply side the demand side whether it's China peaking its use of coal three years ago or the policies of the Modi government in India in particular indicating that they're pushing very aggressively into renewable energy and want to phase out their thermal coal imports over the next few years I mean that is changing the structural dynamics particularly of the coal market and I think that's that's where you'll see the activity on the demand side.
1: Thank you. Look, Malcolm, now I have to let you go, but I have one last question from one of the radio team, and I'd like you to address this answer to... Children, people that still at school, they learn about the planetary boundaries that we're crossing. They realise that climate change is, you know, likely to make many species extinct, and uh, it's an extremely dangerous situation we are. Once they're learning science, they are learning a lot more than the general public. I think. No, this friend of from the radio team, she really liked your land management chapter, and she asks that you say something, especially to young people, about the way forward about biodiversity preservation and using the land to reduce our emissions and after tim Flannery's seaweed book made the sea as well
3: That's right. well barack obama famously said that ours is the first generation to actually see the impacts of climate change and perhaps the last generation that will be able to take some very serious action to moderate um, the impact of climate change and I see that going back to our discussion about social contract. That is the principle, that is the overriding intergenerational responsibility that parents and grandparents today have to Australian children and their children, to make sure that we put in place a policy framework that doesn't leave all of the heavy lifting to our children and grandchildren. Uh, And we've got a great tradition in Australia of doing that, of thinking about policies that that, um, set Australia up not for the next 5 or 10 years but for the next 30, 40 and 50 years we've done it in so many different ways over our history and we've got to do it in climate change policy. We've got to make sure that we transition our energy system so that we have a good standard of living for our children, but one that is sustainable, one that recognises the need to decarbonise this very carbon-intensive economy. And we also have to look at things like the use of our land sector, not only for um, for carbon reasons, for reasons to do with climate change, but also to make sure that the, the um, land sector is sustainable for for flora and for fauna on our land, but also looks after runoff into environmental assets like the Great Barrier Reef. This is a very broad challenge, but it's one that that the parents and the grandparents today need to face up to.
1: Thank you very much. So we've been talking to the Honourable Mark Butler, who's the Shadow Minister for Climate Change at the moment, and he's uh, very generously given us his time to talk about the new book uh, he's written called climate wars, and I'm hoping we'll find a truce and a peace and a way forward from those climate wars very soon.
2: You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on 3CR Radio. Thanks to our guest Mark Butler for giving us this extensive interview. Thanks to his publisher for arranging it. Mark's book is called Climate Wars and is on sale now. Thanks also to the team today, Teddy, Jody, Roger and Viv,
1: Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website, For reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au.